In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eight liturgical years ago, or eight calendar years and four days ago, our family had one of the more memorable Pentecost Sundays in our lives. That morning, our son Luke was baptized, and that evening I was ordained to the priesthood. It was a very full day. Pentecost is a customary day for both baptisms and ordinations, because in both liturgies we invite the Holy Spirit to act. For instance, in the ACNA liturgy for baptism, the celebrant prays the following, Now, Father, sanctify this water by the power of your Holy Spirit. May all who are baptized here be cleansed from sin, be born again, and continue forever faithful in the risen life of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In my ordination of the priesthood, the bishop laid his hands on my head and spoke these words, Receive the Holy Spirit for the office and work of a priest in the church of God, now committed to you by the imposition of our hands. Earlier in that same service, all the priests who were present came forward and laid their hands on me, blessing me and invoking the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and ministry. I'm not bringing these up as some sort of weird power move, trying to show off my Holy Spiritedness, but as a way of reflection on what we as Anglicans believe about the Holy Spirit. Now, I always appreciate a commitment to theological mystery, recognizing the limitations that we have in order to explain how God acts. But in these services, we do say something about the activity of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, I want to use them to talk about the work of the Spirit in general. So just like at baptism, the Holy Spirit forms and unifies the people of God. At baptism, we initiate and welcome new Christians into the body of Christ. It makes sense for Pentecost to be this day for baptisms, because it's at Pentecost that we mark the birth of the church, the people who are marked by the outpouring of God's Spirit. Now, it's not a coincidence that the church was born 50 days after the Passover. Pentecost is one of the three harvest celebrations today called Shabbat, if I pronounced that correctly, which I most certainly did not, but at which the Jews commemorate and remember when Moses received the law at Mount Sinai. That's the moment when the people of Israel went from being simply the descendants of Abraham into the people who were formed and defined by the law given to them from God. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, God again formed a people, but instead of giving the law to guide and direct them, he poured out his spirit, giving us himself. And these new people were not held together by common ancestry. In fact, that's made pretty clear in Acts 2. When the tongues of fire fell down and a group of Galileans spoke, it was understood by Parthians, Medes, Elamites, etc., etc. Pentecost is the undoing of Babel, the elimination of the linguistic and cultural barriers between the peoples of the world and each other and the God who made them. Peter quoted from the prophet Joel, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This biblical picture of all the nations coming to worship the one true God is both an elimination and an elevation of the cultures of the world. In one sense, there's no longer one single culture or people that have unique access to God. But it isn't as if the giving of the Holy Spirit wipes away all of our differences, throwing everyone into one big blender and hitting puree. It's a celebration of diversity. In Acts 2, the people from the nations don't all understand the language of the Galileans. They hear the gospel preached in their own language. The Galileans speak and the peoples hear it in their language. This may seem like a nitpicking kind of distinction, 
But I think the point is driven home by what Paul writes about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. When Paul talks about the body of Christ and the diversity of gifts, he isn't just giving us a sort of personal inventory so we can find out what type of body part we are and then live apart from the rest of the body. The point of 1 Corinthians 12 is to give a picture of the glory of the diversity of gifts that work together to form the body of Christ. You see this even more so when you consider it within its context. One chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives instructions on how to celebrate the Eucharist, but his primary focus is on the disunity that was occurring at the Lord's table in Corinth. Just after today's reading, Paul reminds the eyes that they can't say to the ears that they aren't needed. Just a few verses later, we have 1 Corinthians 13, this treatise on love which is a virtue that simply cannot be practiced without an object, a person or a people to love. Paul says in verse 7 this morning that the Spirit is given for the common good. God gave his Spirit for the building up of the church, for the good of the whole body. There is no such thing as a solo Christian. In his writings, Paul can often be very confident about his place among the apostles, even confronting Peter to his face in Galatians. But Paul also submitted himself to the other apostles, apostles, including Peter, after he converted. And when he defends the authenticity of his gospel in that letter to the Galatians, he doesn't assert that he is a better gospel than the other apostles, but that his gospel and the other apostles' gospel is the same gospel, and that he and Peter were simply called to preach to different people. What we read this morning was just one example of Paul's greater commitment to the idea that being a Christian Being one whose body is a temple for the Holy Spirit is by definition to belong to a people, those whom God has called. Now, forming a people may not be the first thing on our minds when we reflect on the power of the Holy Spirit, but it is a significant work. It is not by our own efforts or our excellent team-building exercises or rallying behind a compelling vision that we find unity. Those are great, But it is the Spirit who binds us together. It is the Spirit who we call upon to unite the newly baptized into the community of faith. We are asking for God to do a supernatural thing when we pray for unity. Because left to our own devices, we will seek out those who are most like us and then form factions, which we see out in the world and we see, unfortunately, even in the church among Christians. So the Spirit forms us and unites us. But of course, Pentecost is more than just the formation of the church. It is the empowering of the church to do its mission. While today I am reflecting on my own ordination, the unique moment when we all asked God to equip me to do the work of a priest, the more important empowering of the Spirit is what happens in the life of every believer. The passage from Joel that Peter quotes very intentionally lists out all the diverse categories upon whom God will pour out his spirit, men and women, young and old, slaves and free. All of these groups will prophesy. This is how Peter explains what had just happened. Some people thought they were drunk, but he says, no, this miracle of the mighty works of God being told to the people from all of these nations, this is the prophecy of Joel fulfilled in the mission of the church fueled by the power of the spirit. And so when Peter talks about these apocalyptic events, or when Joel talks about them and Peter quotes it, blood and fire and mist, these aren't specific things to look for, but to point to the fact that the event described and the event that happened on Pentecost would change the world, 
not unlike our English phrase, earth-shattering. The earth is not shattered when earth-shattering events happen, and yet we recognize that means everything is different. The power of the Spirit. But power can be an empty vessel of a concept being defined by whatever we put into it. There's a temptation to think about the power of the Spirit as a thing we wield, or perhaps an authority given to a select class who then use it to maintain their own status. And then it's easy to overcorrect and try to live our lives without the Spirit's help at all, imagining that we don't want to be like those types, and so we will simply live a natural life, pray to God, shrug our shoulders, and say, maybe, maybe God's involved. I'll confess that's my temptation. I think it's useful to go into our reading from John 14 this morning, where Jesus promises the Spirit to his disciples to get some clarity. Now, the word that Jesus uses to name the Spirit has been translated in a few different ways, and I want to go through three of them this morning to elaborate. The first is helper. Some translations say, I will send the helper. Now, we can already get into the weeds if helper becomes something like Santa's little helper or daddy's little helper, as if the Holy Spirit were our little buddy who comes along with us on our home improvement projects and holds the screwdriver for us until we need it. I am a youngest child, and I am very familiar with this role. Helper here is not much more like, excuse me, helper is much more like one who comes alongside us and empowers us to do what is needed. Not to be wielded by us, but the source and the way we do what God has directed us to do. Helper also reminds us that we have some agency in this process. The Spirit isn't an automatic guarantee of future outcomes. We all know enough baptized and ordained people to know that those moments where we ask God to do work in the lives of Christians liturgically by the power of the Spirit isn't a simple input-output process. In helping us, the Holy Spirit is also leading us. We get dove imagery from Jesus' baptism, but sometimes the Spirit seems more like a wild goose, a metaphor I've particularly enjoyed that comes from our Celtic brethren. If you think you know where the Spirit is going to lead you, you are probably wrong. But what a magnificent thing when God takes you into the places you didn't think you could go, doing things you didn't think you could do, and showing you his power by the Holy Spirit to do more than we could ask or imagine, if only we would allow the help. Another way the word is translated is advocate. An advocate is one who argues your case in trial who comes to your aid when things are stacked against you. When that wild goose gets you into places you didn't think you'd be able to handle, when the trials come and if we are following the Spirit into the places where the gospel needs to be made known, trials will come. In those moments, we have the Spirit as our advocate. I was reading last week that Pentecost is sort of like a mirror image of the ascension. While Jesus in his resurrected body goes into heaven, taking part of earth to live there, the spirit descends so that part of heaven is permanently dwelling here on earth. And while Jesus advocates on our behalf at the throne of God, the spirit is our advocate here. We shouldn't miss that when the spirit comes on Pentecost, it is as violent wind and fire. Living lives empowered by the spirit will not be safe. But when those trials come, our helper and our advocate is with us strengthening us and helping us as we face challenges ahead, maybe even purging away and purifying the unrefined parts of our lives that still cling to our own pride and sin. Lastly, though, and maybe most useful for us right now, is that this name for the Spirit is also sometimes translated as comforter. 
As Jesus gives his disciples this farewell discourse, they are concerned. And they're asking where Jesus is going. And to show them the Father, they are scared. And Jesus says he won't leave them alone. He'll send the comforter. Now, the promise of a comforter isn't a promise to get rid of the things that are difficult. In fact, again and again in Scripture, when God offers himself in difficult seasons, the promise is not to remove the problem, but to step into the problem with us. This is the example of the incarnation. This is what Jesus told his disciples to expect in the Holy Spirit. This is the Great Commission, where Jesus sends them out and says, Lo, I will be with you. Pentecost is Jesus making good on that promise. The world around us is in crisis, from a global pandemic to political strife to yet another, Lord, help us yet another public example of what our brothers and sisters in the minority communities have been telling us for years, that the disease of systemic racism continues to exist and threaten the lives of people of color in our country, as it always has. The brokenness of the world is very real. And another year, this sermon's primary point would be about our need to go out in the power of the Spirit to call to repentance those systems that oppress and offer the good news that Jesus is Lord over the powers and principalities that perpetuate racist systems. I can tell you this week I am particularly grieved over the fact that one of the most emotional sermons I've ever delivered was given almost four years ago. September 25th of 2016, in response to a different pair of unjust killings of African-American men, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. I listened to it yesterday, and unfortunately, it still feels just as relevant then as it does today. Not much has changed. That message is still true. I don't want to give you extra homework. The sermon's only 14 minutes long. If you want, if you want to listen to it and hear my thoughts on it, go listen to it now. I mean, not right now, but later. If you want something more con contemporary, you can read the letter co-authored by our bishop, which was shared on Friday on our church's social media feeds. I, I was preparing for this sermon, and I sort of worried that not saying something in this exact moment would be a problem and would be callous on my part. But I fear I'll have more opportunities to address the stain of racism on our country and in our church in weeks to come. Lord, have mercy. This year, though, I wanted to be sure on Pentecost to say this. I believe that our own particular church community needs the Holy Spirit as comforter more than ever. Internally, in our community, our church has been wounded. As many are still reeling from either the removal of a pastor or from his actions that were the cause for his removal, or perhaps some combination of both, all compounded by our separation. And in that midst, we pray for the Spirit to comfort us. If you'll allow the metaphor here, I think our body of Christ is in need of physical therapy. When an athlete goes through physical therapy after an injury, while not every body part is directly affected by that injury, the whole body has to work to return to wholeness. Our wounded body needs the spirit to restore us to health, to help us recover our strength. Recovery means sometimes you have to rest when we want to be active. It means to help or to receive help when we don't always want it. But physical therapy can also hurt. It's hard work to heal well. And in the healing process, you might learn the dysfunctional ways you've been using your body, perhaps the ways in which your own habits exacerbated the injury. 
If you don't do it well, you can develop new unhealthy habits, either slowing recovery or putting you at risk for yet another injury. But doing it the right way is the only way to come back from an injury stronger rather than weaker. I think it's pretty obvious, but I hope you catch my drift here. Our church needs to spend some time grieving and lamenting, yes, but also rehabilitating. Looking at how we can take the gifts of God, the gifts that God has given us, and use them for his kingdom, reflecting on where we are, where we've been, and where we might be going, where God is leading us. But we need the Holy Spirit who forms us and unites us and send us out to preach, sends us out to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, to do God's work of healing in us, providing us the comfort not to lie back, but to lean into the good that God can and will do through trials and difficulties. Recovery can feel like a slow process, but it has to be given its due time so that you don't jump back into action too quickly. Now, I say this institutionally. I don't say it to discourage anyone particularly from mission. Far from it. Going through physical therapy doesn't mean you stop all your activities in life. In fact, I hope and pray that some of us will be led out to be people of peace who make no peace with oppression. May God move us as we see the horrible juxtaposition on Pentecost of tongues of fire and fires consuming cities, of the breath of God and a dying man's cries, I can't breathe. This is my prayer for us at Pentecost. Of course, I pray that we would feel the power of the Spirit anew, seeing God lead us out of our comfortable zones and into places where the good news can be preached. May we find that in those spaces where we are stretched thin, that we would know the Holy Spirit as our advocate and helper, enabling us to do the work that God has called us to do. But I pray that this community would know the Holy Spirit as comforter, the one who makes Christ present and known to us in our pain and in our distress, as well as the one who forms us and binds us together. May God take us from the broken places we are as individuals and as a church and as a society and make us into the people he has called us to be so that we might be empowered to declare the mighty works of God who is even now making all things new and maybe even making us new by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.